Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, after it was announced that a deal had been reached regarding the site of Atlanta's police and fire training facility, which is located on DeKalb County property, DeKalb County Commissioner Ted Terry says, whoa, there's still many unanswered questions regarding the deal and everything else related to the controversial facility. He'll join me in just a moment. And then, here's a question. What are the duties of a city's chief operating officer in Atlanta? Well, that means a lot. We'll find out when Atlanta's COO, Lisa Gordon, joins me. She oversees many departments, including police, fire, corrections, public works, and watershed management. And that's not even half the list. And then also, later in the program. I was tired and scared and just didn't want to take it anymore. There's a new podcast that examines a 1960s reform school, which is now being described as a slave plantation for black children, and also tells of the girls who escaped. So all that's coming up. Stay tuned to Closer Look. As mentioned, we begin with, yes, the city of Atlanta has reached an agreement with DeKalb County to begin construction of a public safety training facility. Now, this news comes after this meeting this week between Atlanta and DeKalb County officials. Mayor Dickens, as quoted in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, admits that transparency was an issue, saying, quote, the mayor's office didn't own it, as in we're going to paint this picture for the public. We didn't do that. And because we didn't do that, it started getting painted by anybody that had a brush, close quote. Well, I don't know if he had a brush, but DeKalb County Commissioner Ted Terry agrees transparency was an issue. And in fact, he let it be known through a flurry of tweets after the meeting. And there's more, so we begin today with Commissioner Ted Terry from DeGab County. Thank you for taking time. Been some time. Thank you, Rose, for having me. Uh, in this series of flurry of tweets, you said that uh, among the DeKalb commissioners, you all found out about this joint press conference. How? Day of? What happened here? Uh, uh, that's right, yeah. We were given the press release just a few hours before it was called, and but really you have to go back to two years ago. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a second. Okay. I just want to talk about this meeting. You, so you all were not aware of until the press release came out? I was not aware. Were other members? I think the CEO said he called Commissioner Larry Johnson that morning. That was his statement at the press release, at the press conference. But you didn't get a call? No. Okay. Let's go back. Everyone then. has my number. I got your number. <laughs> uh, let's go back then to, to when all this started. Uh, yep. Because it did not start under Andre Mayor Dickens, uh, Mayor Andre Dickens' mm-hmm. administration. To your knowledge, what had been the conversation? Did you f- feel like there was enough conversation, studies, feasible studies, all this in terms of DeKalb selling this property to the city of Atlanta? Is this where you say this is where it all even began? That's right. So go flashback to 2021. I'd been a commissioner for just a few months, and we got the announcement just like you as a journalist and the public got that the 
the administration at the time had decided that they were going to build this training center uh, in the South River Forest area of DeKalb County. It was announced as, look at this great idea that we came up with. Don't you love it? And here we're going to do it. And that's when we learned about it. We being? The county commissioners. Knowing that it was going to sell. And the the public and the neighbors, everyone, except the executives of those two governments. How would you have liked this process to have worked? Well, it's like a lot of things that we do in government, Rose, uh, whether it's land use planning and zoning, uh, comprehensive plans. You never go into a meeting with the public saying we've already decided for you. You never go into a meeting saying we already worked everything out and you can make some tweaks here and there, but we're going to do this. That's not how transparency and government accountability works. And so my position is, uh, in particular, if you're going to build a major project, and especially if you're going to do it in another neighboring jurisdiction, one where, you know, there's a lot that Atlanta DeKalb work on, mm-hmm. a lot of things that we work on. So we communicate on a regular basis. Um, a decision of that magnitude deserves the respect and dignity for the impacted communities to get a heads up before the decision's made. And you know what? You always have a plan B. You always have a plan C. Because sometimes, surprise, the public doesn't like what you're doing. But when they find out that you've already decided for them, that is already the wrong foot forward. Have you ever had a conversation with CEO Thurman about this very issue that you had? Or, to your knowledge, any of you all, had a, did you have a conversation with them? Yeah, way back when, when we found out that the administrations had already been talking to each other about this. And that's not uncommon. You want to be fair. Sometimes leaders... Well, you're a leader. I'm not saying you're not a leader, but we know that sometimes mayors may talk, you know, and say, hey, let's get together to talk about this. But you're saying you believe that something of this magnitude is not a deal that you just say, hey, we're going to do this and then not include your other leaders. That's right. And, well, you said it better than I could. I mean, that, that is a problem. It's okay for leaders to talk to each other. I encourage that. We should all talk to each other. Absolutely. We should have dialogue. When that dialogue and that opening conversation then turns into now we've made a decision and then now we can let everyone else know what we decided, that's where the transparency and the trust breaks down. Was this, to your knowledge, in the short time that you've been on the commission, was this the first time you've had this breakdown in communication or transparency? There have been other issues that you feel point to a trend here. You know, I think it's it's kind of a symptom of just what we'll just call a strong executive form of government. Uh, Because Atlanta and DeKalb have strong executives. And I can commiserate with my fellow uh, county commissioners um, and Atlanta City Council members, we're not told everything. Mm -hmm. And you could argue, well, we don't need to know everything. We're the legislative branch. We're in charge of policy, budget, and oversight. But when things are made that are going to impact our constituents, directly in a very personal way because development is one of the most personal things that you could ever do in public life because it's literally talking about someone's backyard someone's neighborhood it is their quality of life is their investment in their property Um, it is their forest it is their parks and those are the sensitive topics that deserve an extra level of engagement and i always like to say the meeting before the meeting about the meeting there was this community stakeholder advisory committee, which you nominated uh, Lily. Is it Ponce? Am I saying her mm-hmm. Ponce? Right. Um, but was removed from her position last summer. Now she claimed it was due to her opposition to this project, 
and not for breaking bylaws or speaking on behalf of the committee. That seat is, that seat is still vacant. That's an important committee, though. Is this an example, again, that herein lies a problem within DeKalb County government? Commission, talking about the commission here. Yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, clearly a breakdown, whether it's in the bureaucracy or just the rules and procedures to which some of these bodies are governed. Um, and let's be clear, I mean, when this, uh, this um, project was announced uh, by the previous administration, uh, there was no intent to do a Citizens Advisory Committee. Um, I've now, raised when you say previous administration, you mean on the talking about city or DeKalb? Because you mentioned the previous administration, I want our listeners to understand what you're talking about. Okay, well, I'll you just say, say it. it. It's it's both because they decided okay. this before we knew about it. Okay. All right, so they they got together and they figured this out. And let us know. Now there was no effort to say, well, let's do some resident feedback. And I said, well, because we can't do a rezone, this is not a rezoning process. Let's reflect what DeKalb County is known for, and that's community engagement. And we have a community council, very much like an MPU. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's recreate the community council planning commission model where the site plan has to be approved by that body. When did you make that? Early on. very As, as soon as I found out that we couldn't address this issue through our own land use and zoning, it was mm-hmm. only the administrative decision, the commissioner's hands were tied. We had no power to do anything about it. Did, when you mentioned that, did anyone say, hey, you know what, Commissioner Ted, let's talk about this? Or was it just deaf ears, nothing, crickets? Did you get a response is what I'm asking. So look, they wanted my support for the project. And I said, well, I'd be, I'd be open to supporting it if we could get the neighbors a seat at the table to take what was a bigger plan. If you all remember, the plan was pretty big to begin with. I remember. I tried and to it read. shrunk over right. the preceding months as the Citizen Advisory Committee created. So I, I, feel very, I felt very good at that stage that there was going to be community input. There's going to be people with a seat at the table. Now, fast forward to when Ms. Ponitz uh, had been on the committee for almost eight months at that mm-hmm. point, environmental engineer, and this uh, present presentation of a, of a phase one environmental study was mm-hmm. put forward. And if anyone knows about phase one, phase two, just long story short, a phase two is a deeper review. And some people will say a phase two is not necessary. Others will say it is necessary. And Ms. Ponis, coming from that background and someone that I trust and as a, as a local Southwest DeKalb resident, mm-hmm. um, I said, that's a great idea. You should ask them about the phase two. And I believe that's when it began to dawn that she wasn't going to exactly agree with everything that the committee was saying. What would you have liked for DeKalb County to do with this property? If it could have, should it could have stayed in DeKalb County? What would you have liked? I mean, well, we can. Well, let's go to the MOU that was released. Right? And again, we got the MOU literally as the press conference was starting, and so I had to review it after all of this, mm-hmm. after the fact. And in it, there's a section that talks about the Atlanta Regional Commission working on the South River Forest right. Review Project, okay? And in that MOU, all throughout it, is a lot of words that say, where feasible and if possible. Mm-hmm. Now, you tell me, if a politician gets up and says, I'm going to make a promise, if possible, if feasible. Don't ask me to answer that. Come on, you know that. What do you think? I mean, so there's nothing concrete in there. But a concrete thing that could have been on the MOU was to commit to a joint partnership with Atlanta and DeKalb to fund the creation of the South River Forest District, a multi-jurisdictional authority to buy the other 2,000 acres that are right now at risk of development in that exact area. So now I want to go back then to your understanding when when it was made clear. Was it clear exactly what type of training facility? Because now there's a lot of questions regarding will this solely be for Atlanta police and fire 
what were you told or what do you do you have anything that was in writing that was very clear about what they wanted the property for you know the the use of the property to me was more in line with the the land use designation in the zoning right mm-hmm. this is an r75 parcel of land it's a residential area it, it does abut industrial okay so to me it made sense to have some sort of transition and i believe that's what would happen now how atlanta uh fire and police choose to train and how they do it sure. that's totally up to them yeah, so i'm agnostic about but how I'm just they choose asking, to use it was it was this laid out to your knowledge did you have any inkling that this was going to be for solely atlanta you don't know basically um, you know, I think at one point, so I just, you know, newsflash, a lot of police departments and fire departments are looking for new training facilities. Uh, DeKalb's in the same situation. We have facilities that are decades old and just aren't working. So I think every jurisdiction... So where are y'all going to go? Well, that's a good question. We have a SPLOST referendum potentially coming up this year. So check back in in a few months. <laughs> well, you have some property. Uh, DeKalb County has a lot of property that we own, right? And, you know, I, let's be honest. I mean, these level of... Some of the activities to me, we're more in line with a heavy industrial use. Mm-hmm. Now, the idea of it having classrooms, office parks, community meeting space, parks, green space, sidewalks, all that is not objectionable. To me, that is not objectionable. That's something actually that you saw in the Citizen Advisory Committee that I think they did a really good job of ensuring that we got some particular community benefits in there that maybe otherwise wouldn't have happened. You're, you're not happy with the process leading up to all of this. Yes, we were told this was going to happen and from that point, every all the stakeholders said, we're going to try to make the best of not the greatest situation. So what do you make of Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens saying, look, you know what, transparency has been an issue here. But, you know, the, the horse is already out the barn. People folks say that. But, you know, what what is the lesson learned here? No dirt's been turned. No A permit's been approved, um, but there's still a right of appeal. And so this is not a done deal. And sometimes being a leader means admitting that you made a mistake and it's okay to change your mind does, and it's not too late does to CEO change your Michael mind. Thurman need to admit to that through your lens? Well, again, you know, this was a purely administrative process. And so I think what the CEO articulated at the press conference is that the professionals in our planning department, which I hold in high regard and, and truly believe they did everything by the books and by the law, um, at the end of the day, it still wasn't his call to deny the permit because we are going to follow the administrative code. So what's been put forward, uh, we haven't had a chance to really dive in deep. Um, but if there are some issues with the permit, and we don't know if there are, there is a right for nearby neighbors, for a commissioner to appeal that land disturbance Do permit. you want this facility to be built? I would like to make sure that the Clean Water Act, that the EPA, EPD regulations on stormwater and sediment erosion control are followed have to follow the law. Sounds like we need to even have a bigger community conversation about this. Please. The Cabot County Commissioner Ted Terry, as always, thank you for taking time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. 
Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Don't y'all just love the Internet? According to Indeed.com, the online employment portal, these are the skills a chief operating officer must have. You take your notes, Ms. Gordon. Uh, leadership ability, team building, conflict resolution, decision making, interpersonal relations, public speaking, communication, strategy. I guess that's all you need, maybe. Well, Lisa Gordon is just over a year into her job as Atlanta's chief operating officer in the Dickens administration. So here's a question. What responsibilities come with that title, and especially for a city like Atlanta? So let's find out as we welcome Atlanta COO Lisa Gordon. And you're just days away from exactly one year in the Dickens administration. Is that congratulations? Happy year? What? It's it's a fantastic opportunity working for our 61st mayor, Andre Dickens. He is full of energy, strategy, and just loves our community. And I think he instills that values in all of us. And so we have a full commitment to be fully engaged with our community. He draws circles. Absolutely. (laughs) He corrects me when he says that. Now, let me ask ask you this. Do you think people, the public, understands the role of a city's COO? I'm not sure. I think it's a position people know it exists, but really the goal of the COO is to make sure the tools, resources, people, and processes are in place so that we can provide the best service to the citizens and businesses and anyone coming to our city. Earlier, I mentioned just a few of the departments and agencies, and it's a lot, uh, Ms. Gordon. Do you think it's too many? under the COO? Should it be parsed out and maybe have deputy COOs? Well, actually, I have deputy COOs. I actually have three great deputies that that uh, support. I think it is. We do a great job. We also have, you know, other uh, members of our administration, our chief of staff that has um, some programming and strategic initiatives. And uh, we are creating a chief policy officer, which will work on big thinking and policy uh, across our community. So I think we are looking for ways to make sure we're being innovative, but still get the job done. So when Mayor Andre Dickens made this announcement, he listed several of your credentials, including your leadership at Habitat for Humanity. I think that's where I first may have interviewed you from. So when we think about Habitat for Humanity and then housing, because housing is one of those areas, and you don't want to tier departments and agencies in terms of priorities, but we know that obviously fire and police, come on, we'll get to that in a moment. But because housing, you also, are you the one who's, Primary, you need to be the person to figure out the city's approach to the unsheltered and the homeless population. Is that true? Absolutely. We actually have a, um, I would say, multifaceted strategy. Um, Homelessness, I'll I'll take homelessness first. Mm -hmm. Homelessness, we are uh, fortunate to have Partners for Home, which is our primary contact that bring all the providers together. But we are also looking at how do we internally uh, support all of the activities. So with homelessness, unfortunately, you end up with public issues like trash. You end up with services uh, that people need care. There's different levels of it. And as folks listening to this and they're driving around our city and you and I both know where we can go to see the encampments, some just right outside City Hall, some under, you know, overpasses, some near parks. You see that. And and 
maybe it's a fair question, maybe not. I don't know, Ms. Gordon. People say, well, clearly what y'all are doing may not be working. Or is that just not fair because this is not a, a, a situation that you can just have one solution toward? I think that the people are have a right to what their perspective is. Mm-hmm. And and many people think uh, we don't want to see our neighbors in need, right? Mm-hmm. We don't I don't want to see anyone living on the street. Mm-hmm. The mayor doesn't. You know, no one wants to see someone in that kind of condition. So let's let's all agree that we need to find better solutions so that we can eliminate homelessness. I think that would be a, a great focus for everyone, but there are multiple issues that impact homelessness and how it's become and since COVID I'll say visible homelessness has increased Mm -hmm. and that's what people are seeing in the downtown area where before when there were a lot of businesses and a lot of activity during the day most times homeless people would not be on the different streets so there's a difference in terms of total homelessness visibility of homelessness has increased as well as housing, cost of housing, has become more expensive. So there's a, and there's a lot of intersections there because there's a, you can throw in the need for, for maybe those resources being mental health, those resources being housing, those resources maybe being something else. So how do you, as the COO then, with your, your deputies or with your, your multi-agencies, because sometimes you need agencies to work across each other to even address that problem. How do you parse out all of this? Well, uh, we're doing a few things. Let me tell you what we're doing. So we, one of the initiatives we had in the 2022 budget uh, was uh, over $26 million in funding that would support moving about 1,500 people uh, to housing options and to get the support that they need. But before you get to that, you have to do the outreach and build trust with those communities and people that are in homeless, uh, in a homeless situation. The other thing is, um, and some people, we have to offer opportunities to people Mm -hmm. and we're not trying to, um, we're trying to have compassion as we work with them through those situations. There's also the pipeline. How do we prevent people from going into homelessness. So one of the issues we have is we've cleared a few encampments, 30, 40, 50 people, and within a few weeks, you see new people coming back. Mm -hmm. So there's also the issue of how do we make sure there's no pipeline for homelessness? What are those uh, safety net programs that we can put in place so that if people are in need, whether it's um, any kind of assistance or any kind of uh, issue they might be having, mental health, addiction, um, and other things, how do we get those services to them before they get to be homeless? And then how do you work with the people that are there that need uh, those housing options and move them uh, to housing and the people who are chronically homeless mm-hmm. who've been on the street for years how do you have solutions for those people I want to move on to another area but you mentioned partners for home and they've been on this program and and they do what they can in their other partnerships I remember gateway in under Shirley Franklin's administration which you were a part mm-hmm. of even was the first mayor to really kind of try to bring everybody together and in order I think uh, wanted a study done and that sort of gave a snapshot into the seriousness of the problem. But you mentioned building trust. So with that being said, in terms of building trust, do you feel like you have enough trust among other agencies and partners to bring everybody together? Partners for Home can't do it alone. Absolutely. We have had um, at least three sessions with different partner groups for that very reason. We uh, were fortunate to partner with some of our um 
friends in the business community to host a meeting. We had over 70 providers in one room uh, and the mayor was there and some other leaders that are passionate about how do we solve for this in 2022? Because I know there's there's a lot of work that's been done, but there's also new solutions and new things that are happening around the country to impact homelessness that we have to embrace in Atlanta as well. Can you give me one before we move on? One example, when I talked about the pipeline that we're aware of, is there's in some cities where they use um, they use technology to detect where people are at risk of homelessness. And in one of the cities, they were able to reduce their uh, people going into uh, homelessness by about 30 to 40 percent. You say technology. I mean, technology where you text, I'm about to be evicted. I have okay. an issue. How do I get? And you can do the whole application where, where the people are. You're okay. getting them resources where they are. So, so if you, you let's say Atlanta was using that here, that's a great example, because then you get a let's say you get a, a number of texts from folks in a certain area. But, you know, development is coming there. Do you use that then to are you hoping that you all use that information if you're talking with the developer who's bought property there and say, look, understand this. It could be because of your development. Folks are getting displaced. And we want to talk about this. I think it's I think it's. I think it's yes and that was an example of something that's a, a new solution that we should evaluate. So I don't want to, anyone to think uh, we're going forward with that. But I think we have to invite the developers are members of our community. You know, I have a big participation in Urban Land Institute mm-hmm. and I work a lot with developers as well as uh, with the planning department. So I think it's important for us to do this together. That's what our mayor always says. We need to work together together. So we all are responsible for how we solve issues. So developers, as well as residents, as well as businesses. Well, and look, Ms. Gordon, that being said, in terms of planning and community development and and economic development, this issue with this training facility, are you, will you admit that there could have, it could have been done differently, even though you weren't technically on board when all this began, but as a CEO, as someone with your background, and you come highly recommended. I've, I told you when we field full disclosure, somebody said, oh, she's great. She's good at X, Y, and Z. You can, can you assess this and tell the mayor or other folks, listen, this is where we kind of went wrong with this. I think the most important thing is to not look in the rearview mirror. If you're driving forward, you can't be looking in the rearview mirror. But the past can bleed to preventing you from making the same mistake. It, it can, but I, what I was going to say, I will finish I my, finish I my statement, is that you have to look forward. What can we do? And I, and I think we have um, looked to the people in the six neighborhoods in, in Atlanta and the neighborhoods in DeKalb that actually are directly adjacent to this facility and get their advice on what do they want to see? How do we engage them? And it has been said that those people don't know what they want. I suggest that people do know what they want and they do know what's good for their community. And so many of the comments and of the requests that we had for the facility, we were able to incorporate um, as we changed our site plan. Is there more work to do? Are there more conversations to be had? Absolutely. Because we want this community uh, to embrace that there'll be um, 
close to 300 acres of green space, trails, ball fields, and community center and assets that don't exist in the community today. Can you have that without having a fire and police training facility? Because there's a, you mentioned this is what the people said. Now, everybody didn't say that in that neighborhood. There were some who didn't want it. There were people... There were people who did not want the project or who had a different perspective. I won't even say that they didn't want the pro- project. Um, they well, may have just had a different project. Well, uh, I'll let you say that. I'll say they had a different perspective. Uh, but what I would say is, you know, we have three close to 385 acres and 300, but close to 300 will be used for parks, green space and trails. And then 85 will be used for the training center. And even within that, there is only a small percentage that is actual footprint for those activities. I do think, and I'll bring, I'm going to answer your question, that we need it. When the facilities we have have been condemned and when our police and fire departments cannot be trained, there's a huge need. And if we have existing land that we can use, and this land was previously used for similar activities, and it was... similar i'm just saying it was previous well it was previously a facility years and years ago that has rubble that that site has rubble on it it has uh other things so it's not like it was uh green space but y'all didn't know but but the city and and again and i want to be fair because we could have a whole other conversation about that and we will move on but there are other property that the city had that might not have been so controversial and that we don't y'all got tons of of you playing out there on Fulton Industrial? What about so I'll say two. There? I'll say two things. And you bought what? this from the cab. I'll say two things. One, we the decision to of where to place the police uh, fire training center um, was made when I joined the team. So the only thing I can work on and improve on is share the facts with you and with the community of what we want to have. What do you take from this? Because I want to get into planning and community development. Because Atlanta, and we were talking about this earlier, Atlanta, we love Atlanta. We love the city, right? It has a lot to offer. And everyone wants everything, all the resources in their area. I had someone who was visiting me recently and said, Rose, you're, where you live, you have everything. And I said, yeah, but you know what? There are other communities and neighborhoods where they don't. I can walk to anything that I need in my neighborhood. But everybody doesn't have that. So when you look at planning and community development how do you want to see that because this is where you really have an expertise in in helping people get placed in communities where they feel like they can be a part of it and they have amenities i mean that's what habitat for humanity is all about right placing people so they can begin their own path to self-sufficiency absolutely i think uh We have uh, put together what we call a housing strike force, and that housing strike force is looking at how do we leverage our public lands together across multiple agencies. So it includes MARTER, Invest Atlanta, Atlanta Housing, even some of our nonprofit partners um, like Community Land Bank, uh, the Land Bank, uh, just all of those different partners and looking at the parcels we have how we can come together and look at what are those community needs. And then we also have a neighborhood team that's under the chief policy officers team that's being developed now. And we're looking at the core neighborhoods and mapping out what are the assets in those neighborhoods? Mm -hmm. Do they have parks? Do they have green space? Do they have grocery stores or access to fresh food? Do they have um, safe lights? You know, Mm -hmm. what is the lighting? So we're doing a full inventory and we're looking at all of the projects that were on the books for the for those communities, mm-hmm. such as we just passed the T-SPLOS and the bonds. Mm-hmm. And so we have parks, fire stations, and we're mapping those things out to make sure communities have what they need. But then you're also challenged with 
those project lists that you still have to get to from those other previous splots? How do you, because there's a lot on the list, and not just with the administration you just joined. I mean, you know, there have been lists that go back that still have yet to be completed. How do you balance all of that? Well, the good news is we have some great team members, and we um, came up with a service delivery plan. And the plan aligns all of our activities, not just within the construction team and project management team, all the way to how long will it take to get to procurement? How long will it take to get permitting? And all of our teams have been working together to have alignment so that when we look at projects, we actually know, okay, it's going to take this long to procure, but while they're procuring it, we can be doing this, th- these other activities that advance the project. And, and that then, procurement board, y'all to come a long way because there was some issues we have we have totally transformed so our there's our, not a check our procurement cut. our <laughs> procurement process and our team uh we had a great uh new uh, chief procurement officer uh mr majumdar and we have completely transformed our procurement process but that helps us with service delivery so when you look at from my seat as coo from a strategy standpoint, it's not just getting the dollars for the project. It's every part of the process that touches a project until the community is able to use that project. And that's the work that we've done this year is done that full evaluation. And we've completed a document. We've presented that to city council that shows this is how we're going to deploy projects. And this is how we're going to catch up uh, on projects that were in the past. They may have stalled. How are we going to get them back online and get them across the finish line, as well as how are we going to be in a position to um, even beat our expectations? Mm -hmm. Because it's important. The Beltline. Mall West End, uh, the Gulch, uh, Civic Center, help me if I'm forgetting another one, a major development. Now we know what's happening, I think, with Pittsburgh Yards or whatever. Those are huge developments in communities that have, you know, suffered and been disappointed in the past. How do you assess the path that the city is on now in terms of transparency with the communities? And then my second question I'd like for you to answer is, do you believe that contracts should be binding with communities when development comes in? So I'll let you talk about the assessment and then the binding agreement. I think one of the things our administration is committed to under Mayor Dickens' leadership is full participation with our community and with what's happening in our community. So we've done several things. We, we have People's Day where people come and talk to us. We have last week alone had a neighborhood summit with all the um, leaders in different neighborhoods to talk about the different communities and how they think we ought to approach um, certain things. We'll be going through a rezoning process, which has got a huge community um, engagement piece. And I think the most important voice is the people that live in our community. So first and foremost, we have a very strong commitment to engaging with our community. Mm-hmm. We People see me everywhere. They talk to me. They email me. Now, I'll be fair. I see you and Mayor Dickens. Y'all, everywhere I go, I turn, I'm surprised I haven't seen them in the grocery store. Everywhere I go, I see y'all. Y'all are out there. Can't say that all been the you know, case for past administration. But, you know, folks are busy. I see y'all out there. I see you talking to people. I want to be fair. So just wanted to say yeah. that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, we So full participation means not only do we see you and talk to you, but we listen to you. We take your feedback, and we tell you what happened to your feedback. Because sometimes we have a lot of great ideas, but they may be competing with each other. And we have to tell people, well, you said 
we should do X or we should do Y, what happened to that idea? Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of it Um, because we have to be fair in any conversation. We can't implement everything. Right. So but what can we do and and how are we taking your feedback? So I think that's important um, in addition to the dialogue. The second thing you said about contracts with the community, I think it's it's more than a contact a contract with the community. It's about the trust, public trust, building the public trust. Because even if I have a contract, but I am unprofessional to you, I'm rude to you, I don't listen to you, but I'm adhering to the contract, it doesn't create a sense of community, a sense of belonging, and a commitment and that trust between us. So it's, to me, it's, yes, we can write the term sheets, and there's been plenty of contracts out there with the community and that people feel like the trust is the piece that we have mm-hmm. to build. And I will say the mayor and um, lots of community partners launched Year of the Youth. And I think yeah. the Year of the Youth is an example of building trust and building community where we have all a shared goal of making sure our children are well and they are safe. I wasn't able to get to this question, but a listener did email me and wanted to know the plan with parks like Woodruff and Hurt because this listener feels like this is an example of you know, needing more resources for those who are unsheltered living in the park, and perhaps they can be part of remodeling and you know, refurbishing some vacant buildings, you know, using those who can help. I, you know. I think for as far as parks go, we're, we're fortunate. We um, brought on Commissioner Justin Cutler, and he is looking very proactively at, at how we use our parks, how we leverage our parks, and how we engage community as part of that process. So I think that is just starting. The mayor also um, started the Green Space Advisory um, Council, and we meet with that council quarterly, and they bring to us lots of initiatives, and they have subcommittees that we're working on around issues related to parks. And another listener says, you have way too much responsibility. My God, how do you do it? Atlanta's chief, that's what she said, Atlanta's chief operating officer, Lisa Gordon, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Rose, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. While there are some who want to control how history is told in our nation's academic classrooms, the fact is history should be reviewed and examined. Send me your emails. And that's where we turn to 1960s Alabama. Black youth sent to the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children, also known as Mount Megs. Well, many of those children only wanted one thing, to escape. I tried to get away from it, and I couldn't. You couldn't. Nobody run from that. No way to escape. We were wanting to speak with someone, you know, because we knew they were going to send us back there. And we were not going. I was, I was not going back. 
without telling somebody what was going on with me. Picture the worst environment for children that you possibly can, and Mountain X is at the top of that list because of what happened to the kids there. Nobody got a fair shake at Mount Meg's, not one kid, and it was a disgrace. That last voice you heard was Denny Abbott. He was a probation officer for juveniles in Montgomery County in the 60s. He transported children to the school, or he, or as he called it, the slave camp. You also heard former students Lonnie Holly and Mary Stevens, who did manage to escape. The story of this facility, its horrors, and the five black girls who escaped is now presented in a new investigative podcast. It's called Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children. It's researched and hosted by Josie Duffy Rice, a journalist, writer, Harvard Law School graduate whose work has been solely focused so much of her career on prosecutors, prisons, and other justice reform issues. She's been on this program before, and we welcome her back. Thank you for taking time. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And we should know for our listeners the following conversation. We, it may contain descriptions of sexual and physical violence. Let's back up a little bit, Josie, because I'm I'm curious. This reform school, what they describe now as a, quote, modern-day slave plantation in the 1960s, there was this torture and abuse. I did not know about this. I'm just learning about this. How did you come to know about this school or this, quote, reform school? Yeah, I mean, I um, have obviously been doing this work for a long time. I live here in Georgia, and I also had never heard of the school. I learned about it from Virginia Prescott um, and School of Humans uh, um, when she reached out to me about this project. But we talked to people in Montgomery who didn't know about this institution, and it still exists today. It really, um, it really has kind of gone under the radar. You have been talking to folks for over a year. You've gone out. You've done so much research here. In the beginning, was this really supposed to be a, quote, reform school? Was this the original intention? No. In the, well, in the beginning, it was supposed to be a place where Black boys in particular could go for rehabilitative services instead of being sent to adult prison. And this is the early 1900s, 1907. It was started by a woman who was the uh, daughter of an enslaved woman. Um, and it was supposed to be a, a pretty progressive place for the time. Mm -hmm. But then it was then it was taken over by the state of Alabama. Uh, that happened in 1911. And that changed everything about the institution. Hmm. We learned that there was no real process for determining who should be sent to this, quote, reform school. I want to play a clip for our listeners. It's from one of those youth, Jenny Knox, now as an adult. Once we got into the judge's chamber, he said, ma'am, I'm sentencing you a year and six months to the Mount Meigs Indulction School, huh? What? Why? What I do? You know, I didn't do anything. And I just cried and cried and cried and cried because I didn't understand. I didn't know. You heard that a lot. These, these, some of these black youth were just, quote, sentenced there or had to yeah. go there. But there was no really no process for determining if they even needed to, quote, be in reform school. No, at that point, they had really no legal rights. No juveniles did. Right. They they didn't have the right to due process. Um, so we talked to people who never even saw a judge. You know, they were sent to this school. And once they were sent to this school, even their parents 
really didn't have authority over them. The state had authority over them. Um, and you're, you know, they were sent for missing curfew, for loitering, for skipping school. They were sent for things that, you know, shouldn't even be crimes, much less a reason to send a child to a torture facility for years at a time. And Josie, through your research and you and your team and, and what you discovered, we're talking about some horrific conditions here, physical and sexual violence. What did they tell you, the folks that, who worked there or, or you, who were sent there? I mean, it just, it, it, it traumatized every single person who went through those doors, every single one. It was a, uh, the, the physical violence was constant. There wasn't enough food. Kids were had to pick 100 pounds of cotton a day. It was essentially a slave plantation. It was a penal colony. And these are kids as young as eight or nine years old. Right. Um, and and so w what we've discovered is that uh, the people that we talked to who were there in the 60s, they're in their late 60s, early 70s now. Mm -hmm. Right. And it, it still haunts them. It has stayed with them because that's what happens when you do this to children. They're, they were children. Right. Um, and um, it's very clear that the impact that this institution had on thousands of kids is um, is unimaginable. And the five girls that escaped. This led to some changes, maybe not. Tell our listeners what, at least as much as you can, through yes. this process. Yeah, so in 1968, five girls ran away from Mount Meigs, which was not unusual. People ran away all the time. And they were caught after running away, which was also not unusual because they all wore these uniforms and the police would recognize them and pick them up. They were taken to the local juvenile detention center. And one of the, the, the then girls, now women that we speak to, Mary Stevens, said she had she was overcome with the need to tell someone what happened to her, what it was going on at the school. And so she happened to, um, you know, get the ear of a man named Denny Abbott, who, as you mentioned, was a probation officer there, a white man who was a probation officer there in the at the time. That led to a, a real reckoning at the institution, right, uh, that led to some of the major abusive figures at the institution being having to leave, mm -hmm. that led to some changes, that led to a federal lawsuit, that led to DOJ being involved. So I would say it absolutely had a major impact, but uh, I don't think it changed everything. Mm -hmm. And I think the levels of abuse that happen at institutions like Mount Meg's, which again, still exists today, um, it, I don't think it was as bad anymore, but it wasn't good. Has the state of Alabama, again, when we talk about whether you call it healing or reconciliation, it begins with acknowledgement. Has the state of Alabama had anything to say about this facility? No, not, not since they were forced to say something in the 1960s after a lawsuit. There has been no reckoning. There has been no apology. There has been no acknowledgement of what thousands of children over decades endured and what that did. Because an important thing to keep in mind here is that many of these kids that we found in the 60s ended up on death row, ended up serving life without parole sentences, ended up in state facilities for the rest of their their um, lives. and. Also, many of them ended up inflicting serious harm on people later in the same ways that harm was inflicted on them. You know, the 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 impact of Mount Meg's resonates beyond just the people who went there. It's mm -hmm. their families. It's the people they harmed. 
It's their loved ones. It's their kids. And there has been nothing from the state of Alabama. So no one has been held accountable? No one's been held accountable, no. Josie, do we know if there were any kids who lost their life while in the facility inside Mount Meigs? We do know that there were children who died at the facility. Sometimes, you know, we have records of nine kids dying in a year, for example. We don't know details about who those kids were. Um, and there were rumors that that was earlier, maybe in the 30s or 40s. There were a lot of rumors in the 60s. There was a graveyard at Mount Banks, right? There were kids who um, were never heard of again. But there was really no ability to follow up. You know, there was really no ability to figure out what happened. And so we suspect though we don't have names and identities that lots of kids lost their lives there over the years. I don't want to give too much away because obviously y'all want listeners to listen to it. Yes, please. Um, but Mount Meg's network, this facility now, it's still open, mm-hmm. doesn't quite function, thankfully, the way it, it did. Um, but did they talk to you all? Would anyone go on the record? No one uh, would go on the record. I went to Mount Meg's um, and we reached out many times. Uh, there was really no kind of interest in, in in being part of this in the sense that we wanted to see the facilities. We wanted to see how kids were living today and, and we didn't get the opportunity to do that. I do think it's worth noting, it does not seem to be what it was in 1967, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I went there. And I don't, I, and we heard from lawyers who had uh, clients there. We heard from people who, you know, um, have sort of been at that institution more recently. And it doesn't, there's a, there's a long way between Mount Meg's in 1967 and a good facility. And I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. In all the work that you've done and and you have been doing this for a long time in, in this, working on this investigative series, where does this, it feels like a silly question to say, hey, where does this rank? But you've done so much. Here you go back in the past and you can make these correlations to some things that happen at Mount Meigs, to some same continuing systemic issues with our entire justice reform system, I imagine, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this was one of the most impactful experiences of my life, um, in part because it, I to be able to see the impact of and 18 months at this institution, um, you know, 50 years later, you really get to see the impact of state violence on people's lives. And it's true, these same these same issues exist today. So it, it really had a major impact on me. It's a compelling podcast. It's Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children. Josie Duffy Rice, thank you so much. Take time as always. Compelling thank you conversation. So much. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Tiffany Griffith is our supervising producer, alongside producers LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rizal, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineers, Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online, wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, catch our rebroadcast weeknights at 7 p.m., as well as in our podcast, another great podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.
Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm-hmm. W-A-B-E. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org.